Hello, and welcome to Dialogue in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. What would saving 25% mean to your practice? Would it mean being able to open a new location, hire a new team member, or upgrade your equipment? Title Commerce is the AAD's preferred provider for merchant services and is committed to saving AAD members 25% or more on their payment processing. Join your fellow members who have already switched and saved. Call 855-51-TITLE or visit titlecommerce.com AAD to learn more. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology Special Edition, the best of the summer AAD 2021. I'm Dr. Brad Glick, and I'm your host. Joining me today is Dr. James Grichnik, who is Professor and Chairman, Department of Dermatology and Cutaneous Surgery, University of South Florida Health, Mursani College of Medicine in Tampa, Florida, which is the home of the summer AAD meeting. Welcome, Jim, and thanks for joining us. Oh, Brad, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So let's go ahead and get started. We want to get into the meat and potatoes of this wonderful session that you chaired. Um, categorized as malignant melanoma, what were the main topics included in the talk and how was your session structured? Right. Well, um, basically, we tried to cover you know a number of the important aspects of melanoma. Um, so we led off with uh, going through the systemic therapies for metastatic melanoma. Uh, followed that by adjuvant therapies for melanoma, um, and then really a discussion on sentinel node, particularly kind of going over some of the historical aspects, which was fun. Um, then, you know, discussing a bit of some of the pathological challenges with some of these tumors, trying to definitively determine whether something's a melanoma or not, particularly these early lesions. Um, then reviewed pediatric uh, melanoma, uh, talked a bit about gene expression profiling and, you know, where that field is, is going. Um, then a little bit of confocal. We talked a bit about lentigo maligna and the potential use of these new technologies for mapping the margins on lentigo maligna. And then some of the really cool things that you can do with the technology as far as, you know, 3D imaging of the skin. Within that structure, for instance, uh, you talk about sentinel lymph node biopsy. And I think at times, sometimes it gets a little controversial for us oh, yeah. in when we're using it and when we do gene expression profiling. What's the latest on sentinel lymph node biopsy? Walk us through it. Yeah, you know, so, you know, for now, it, it's, uh, it remains a standard of care and, you know, certainly part of the guidelines. It's important staging approach. Uh, you need to have that information if you're thinking about putting the patient on adjuvant therapy. Um, but I think, you know, many of us think we're getting to a point now where as we improve our molecular diagnostics, can we kind of move away from a procedure, which, you know, quite frankly, we know is also positive in blue nevi, spitz nevi, congenital nevi, you know, it's not absolute. Um, so just because there's cell and lymph node doesn't mean you're going to end up with a lethal uh, tumor. Uh, but it is a good, um, you know, staging approach, and it certainly does play a role in risk models. So, you know, right now uh, we're still working with Sentinel Node. Um, I think many of us do hope that molecular tests are going to get to the point where we may not need the prognostic information from the Sentinel Node, which of course does have some morbidity um, for our patients. 
What about some particular pearls that came out of the session in general, or maybe categorically in some of the particular areas as you, you laid out the session for us? Like for instance, uh, one of the uh, early talks was about uh, systemic therapies for metastatic melanoma. Uh, right. What's new in that setting? Yeah, you know, I mean, really a lot of the focus right now is on these immunostimulating uh, agents. And, you know, for many of us, it's really been quite exciting to see these medications work. Um, I'll tell you, in my, my early years, um, you know, I saw a lot of efforts with uh, vaccines and IL-2 and interferon. And I must admit, I was a little bit tarnished on the idea of the immune system working. <laughs> uh, but, you know, these agents have been incredible. Uh, and, uh, you know, so we got to review the PD-1 data and the anti-CHLA-4 data and the, the combo data. Um, and, you know, there's some other agents in the pipeline as well. So it's, it's really an exciting time, I think, to be in this field. And, you know, not only for melanoma, for Merkel cell and basal cell and squamous cell, um, you know, all these tumors with very high, you know, mutation burdens due to UV tend to be pretty responsive, responsive to these therapies. So, you know, that was really fun to, to hear and, and talk about. Lilia Correa uh, spoke about lentigo maligna margin mapping. Tell us about that. You know, for yeah. in the trenches, uh, gen derm like me, uh, tell us a little bit about that and, and what the applications are to clinical practice. Yeah, you know, so confocal microscopy is really helpful for these lentigo malignas. Um, and, you know, that to me is, is kind of its sweet spot. It's, it, you know, it's good for some of these pink lesions, but you know, these lesions where there's some concern, is this just a flat sub K? Is it, you know, a solar lentigo or, you know, is, is this a, a lentigo maligna? Uh, this is a really a good tool where you put it on the skin and you see just florid melanocytes, you know, you're, you know, you're looking at a, at a tumor. So the, you know, the first piece of it is, uh, you know, diagnosis of lentigo maligna, but then you know, one of the problems that we all face is how to put adequate margins around these tumors. And technically, as in situ, you know, we'll also often say, well, five millimeter, but we all know that a large lenticle maligna extends well beyond that. Um, so one of the tools is you can use confocal to kind of look beyond the margins, the clinical margins that you're planning on taking to see if you can find foci of tumor. You know, so first you kind of go around with dermoscopy, see if there's concerning areas, and then you can kind of walk uh, the, you know, the edges with the confocal microscope. You know, right now, it's still very time consuming. Uh, you know, this kind of thing I'd like to have some robotics on, uh, but, uh, you know, it does help us identify areas where we're concerned there may be lentigo maligna and uh, potentially expand that margin in that area, uh, you know, with the plan of hopefully reducing the need to go back a second time when you have a positive margin. So it's a really nice tool, still a lot of work, uh, still some opportunities, I think, to improve on it, but it's, it's, it's fun to use. Understood. That's great. And hopefully we'll have some greater efficiencies with these newer technologies and something like confocal, which were more, more practical in the trenches for those of us in clinical practice. Tell me, Throughout the session or even towards the end, were there any unique or kind of interesting questions that came about or any particular longer discussions that happened on any of the topics uh, during this, yeah. you know, three hour I'll, session? I'll, yeah, I'll tell you, 
you know, the, the part that I really stuck out for me was the adjuvant therapy kind of discussion. Um, because we're in a situation now where we have patients that, you know, that may have a positive sentinel node uh, and, um, you know, potentially a thinner tumor um, where because of nodal positivity, you know, they may be able to be put on adjuvant therapy. But the problem is there's a number of those patients that are never going to go on to have metastatic disease. So we now have a situation where we're putting a kind of a group of patients on therapy, some that, you know, are going to go on to have metastatic disease, but some that aren't. And even though, you know, these, these therapies, you know, aren't as bad as traditional chemotherapy, if you will, with a number of side effects, people can have very significant, potentially lethal side effects. And you don't want necessarily to be treating people that don't need the therapy <laughs> uh, with an agent that you may end up, uh, um, you know, causing significant side effects. So a big part of it was, you know, can we do a better job of identifying the highest risk folks in that pool uh, to limit the risks to people that may not need it? Um, you know, so that's the first part. You know, you hate treating people at may not need therapy. The next question that kind of came out of it also was, is there proof that starting the therapy earlier before you have identified metastatic disease versus at the sign of first metastatic disease, is there good evidence that it really makes a difference? Um, because if it doesn't really make a difference, if it's possible to wait to the, the sign of first met, then that would be one way of avoiding all those potentially treating a bunch of people that won't need that medicine. Um, and of course that then plays in, if we don't need to do that, then what's the role of Sentinel node? So it gets, it gets really interesting. So I, I look forward to the next you know, few years as we figure all this out. Well, it seems like there's some variability from patient to patient to patient. Uh, oh, yeah. Just have to tell you, this has been absolutely terrific and, and truly this does represent the best of our summer academy meeting. So I really appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you and thanks once again. Uh, Brad, my honor. Really enjoyed it. Have a good one. You too. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology, special edition, the best of the summer AAD 2021. I'm Dr. Brad Glick and I'm your host. Joining me today is Dr. George Hahn. Dr. Hahn is an associate professor in the Department of Dermatology at the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell, where he leads efforts in clinical research and teledermatology. He's the current vice president of the Dermatologic Society of Greater New York, a member of the board of directors of the New York State Society of Dermatology and Dermatologic Surgery, and a member of the medical board of the National Psoriasis Foundation and an associate of the International Eczema Council. Dr. Hahn remains active in both basic science research and clinical trials, serving as principal investigator in numerous trials encompassing clinical areas such as psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, hidradenitis suppurativa, and vitiligo. Welcome, George, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us about this session with this very unique title, So Many Biologics, So Little Time, how to pick your poison uh, and you're on biologic overload. Uh, tell us yeah. about that topic and uh, what was under the umbrella of this session, how it was structured, and we'll go from there. 
Yeah, and actually it has an interesting story behind it. I mean, the genesis of this really was sitting around one of the clinics, just talking to some of the other voluntary attendings. And, you know, some people were just saying there's so many biologics nowadays, I can't keep track of them. Um, the dosing regimens, everything's so confusing and complicated. And, uh, you know, the admission that sometimes people just write for whatever they've known or whoever was just in the office talking about the last medication. And I thought to myself, well, th there has to be a better way um, to, to really approach all of these biologics. So we started a forum at the AD meeting. Now, after <laughs> this was the last meeting before the pandemic, and after a couple of false starts, uh, they gave us uh, ostensibly the same session for the summer academy. Um, but I thought that we actually really should change it because rather than just focus on psoriasis now, uh, what I thought would be really interesting for the summer meeting is to expand it beyond just psoriasis and talk about all the biologics that we have. And I think for a lot of people, you think about psoriasis biologics first and foremost, and then you have, of course, atopic dermatitis where we really have just one biologic available. But there are a couple in the pipeline, a couple that we think are um, going to be approved that uh, we'll, we'll have in our arsenal soon. And also there's this whole concept of auto-inflammation. So the, the uh, session I actually used to direct at the Summer AD was centered around this concept of auto-inflammation in dermatology, which I think is a really fascinating topic. Uh, and I, I'd heard that the, the people planning the meeting asked me to kind of combine that with this biologics form. I thought, hey, it kind of makes sense because we actually have three biologics approved for auto-inflammation uh, in dermatology that we, we theoretically can get our hands on. So we kind of covered a little of everything, talked a little bit about atopic dermatitis, about auto-inflammation, and of course, psoriasis as well. So what about um, in that forum of biologics broadly in psoriasis, uh, atopic dermatitis, and perhaps futuristically, you know, even in other settings, and I know you're an expert as well in hydratinitis suppurativa, we have a biologic in that space as well, and probably more to come. What are some of the pearls that came out of this session, and uh, what potential impact you think that they may have had on our specialty, and, and also the impact on uh, those in the audience, and going back into work on, on Monday morning when they went back to practice? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we, we went through each of the different sections. So I'll start with atopic dermatitis, which is how the form started. Um, of course, we have dipilumab on the market, very successful medication. And whether by design or luck, they actually got it pretty good on the first try. Uh, that being said, what's really interesting is that in, in the basic science sphere, it does seem like IL-13 is the primary upregulated cytokine in atopic dermatitis skin biopsy samples. Now, we know there's a lot of overlapping features between IL-4 and 13, but IL-13 itself uh, seems to be involved in a lot of the propagation of inflammation that we see with the clinical signs of atopic dermatitis, whereas IL-4 seems to have a more unique role in just the initiation of that process. So the question really becomes, if we have a more targeted agent, in general, the way that we can drive efficacy from this is to have a more, um, like just basically more effective targeting um, or more complete targeting of a certain cytokine pathway. So the idea here is that theoretically, at least, with IL-13 inhibition, you could get to that level. And what's really interesting is that we're seeing kind of differing results. Of course, we have two medications in the pipeline, tralokinumab and lubricizumab. And of course, tralokinumab really 
was a bit disappointing in terms of its primary efficacy outcomes, but I think it still will have a space, especially because it seems like that medication takes a bit longer to get to its peak. So we design our clinical trials based on usually either 12 or 16 weeks, because that's about how long it's, uh, it's really reasonable to keep somebody on placebo. But some medications just take longer than that. And I think we're seeing a little of that with trelacanumab. So for those patients who maybe for whatever reason aren't tolerating or aren't doing well on dupilumab, that might be another option, but we should tell our patients to wait a little longer to get to the full efficacy. Um, it does seem like there's pretty good persistence, even when patients were switched from every two weeks to every four weeks. So um, those are some interesting points about trelakinumab. Lebrakizumab does also seem to have excellent efficacy. So in some of the phase two trials, they actually showed that there were pretty high rates of IgA01 and EZ75 achievement, and the rates of conjunctivitis were relatively low in these trials. So kind of remains to be seen if we can find that sweet spot in atopic dermatitis uh, with more upcoming biologics in that realm. Moving on to autoinflammation, um, you know, autoinflammation versus autoimmunity, that's always a kind of an area of a little confusion, and it's really the difference between the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. Uh, what's really interesting to me is that we actually have three medications, three biologics that are approved for targeting IL-1 beta, which is the central cytokine in autoinflammation. There's anakinra, rilonacept, and canakinumab. And so these are generally approved for uh, some of our classic monogenic autoinflammatory diseases, such as the cryopyrin-associated periodic syndromes. Um, but there's a lot of potential uses for these medications outside of that. We see a lot of autoinflammation in things such as hydratinized suppurativa, in pyodermic gangrenosum, uh, sweet syndrome, and even in severe cases of acne, uh, pustular psoriasis. So I think there's a lot of theoretical interest in using these medications for disease states that we really don't have good treatments for. Think about all those recalcitrant uh, pyodermagangrenosa with patients who have multiple lesions at the same time. You know, these are, these are patients who have really severe skin diseases that take long time to heal. And there are multiple case reports of some of these IL-1 beta inhibitors working on really recalcitrant patients who are tried on medications such as cyclosporin and fliximab and cyclophosphamide, azathioprine, um, those all didn't work for some of these patients, and IL-1 beta inhibition seemed to hit it on the head. Uh, I think also there's some promise in hydratinitis suppurativa. There's some interest in looking at the IL-1 pathway there too. So, you know, maybe not today, not something that you can go in on Monday and start on your patients, uh, mm -hmm. but something certainly to look forward to in the future, especially because I think, you know, for things like HS, there's still a lot on the table. There's still patients who we really just can't get under great control, even with you know, the latest and greatest treatments. Uh, so I think uh, we're looking forward to some of that. Getting in last treating those, getting in the treating those patients early is, I, I think, a big deal too for those HS patients. You know, the trials are set up for moderate to severe patients, but you know, why wait? To, to you know, to your point, we need these drugs, and we need these drugs now, particularly for PG, which can be really unrelentless. Keep going. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no, it's, uh, I know there's a lot that I'm trying to cover right now, but uh, sure. last thing I would say, psoriasis, you know, we have all these medications. I think some of the pearls that we were trying to discuss are those patients who just, you know, for whatever reason, 
keep failing multiple medications. It's an area that we really need more good data on. Uh, actually, uh, I'm part of an NPF project where we're working on that, the, the multi-drug failure patients where no matter what you put them on, they seem to get better, but then the psoriasis seems to flare back. Uh, so we discussed some potential strategies to mitigate this when we think there is a role of antibodies against the medication. It's possible to put patients on methotrexate. That is a dose-related response. So sometimes you do have to push the methotrexate. Uh, you would start it with the next biologic you start. Um, I've had some luck with uh, perhaps medications with different mechanisms in these cases. I think the agreement was that you don't necessarily have to switch from one class to another. Say you started somebody on IL-17 inhibitor and a year or two later, the psoriasis is coming back doesn't really seem to be a class effect thing. If the reasons you picked that IL-17 inhibitor are still functional, such as a patient who has overlap of psoriasis and relatively severe psoriatic arthritis, um, you can still go within that same class. But what's really interesting and nice about the IL-17 class and what's really exciting about going forward is that not only do we already have different mechanisms there, you know, as compared to IL-23 inhibition, where basically the medications all have the same target and work similarly, IL-17 inhibition, we have a receptor blocker already on the market. We're looking at different isoforms, right, different members of the IL-17 family, AMF inhibition. We're looking at a nanobody potentially coming out. So there's going to be a lot more variety in the IL-17 class that gives us a little more uh, wiggle room, if you will. Uh, so medications such as a receptor blocker, bradalumab, might be a good choice in a patient who you know, is failing multiple drugs just because that's a very unique mechanism there. Uh, and it's a more complete targeting of the IL-17 family. Uh, so we talked about a couple of those things. We kind of underscored also the point that there's some uh, concern about inflammatory bowel disease with IL-17 inhibitors. And uh, Jason Hawks made the very good point that you can't really give somebody IBD with any of our biologics, especially with the IL-17 inhibitors. Really, it's kind of unmasking or perhaps adding a little bit uh, just uh, fuel to the fire uh, in terms of those patients who happen to have IBD and that seems to be one of their triggers. Um, so I think that's an excellent point, kind of hopefully allay some of the fears around biologics. Uh, I think we've got a lot of great medications, uh, very attractive dosing regimens. We talked about that and how it affects our patients of childbearing age. Um, you know, of course we have medications out there that uh, one medication rather that we know doesn't cross the placenta, but there's also medications in the IL-23 class that based on the, the relapse rates and the, and the medications working for several months after even stopping them, uh, you could conceivably keep somebody covered for quite some time even after stopping the medication. Um, so a lot of interesting nuances in terms of the way we use our biologics and, and how we see them going forward. What about some questions that may have come up at the completion of the session that were of, of interest in general to our audience here, or a challenge, you know, something that came as a challenge to the session itself? Yeah, I think there's, there's a considerable challenge. You know, certainly we have medications that are in the pipeline that we're thinking about, talking about, that uh, are, are we're expecting to have more news on. But there's also this kind of elephant in the room, which is biosimilars, right? And I think that's something that we all kind of, in, in general, aren't quite sure what to do with yet. I mean, our, our GI colleagues are kind of in the thick of it. 
Um, but we're going to start seeing them uh, probably in around 2023. But it really may shake up the biologic market because those cost savings that the biosimilars represent are going to be a very strong enticement for some of the some of the insurance companies and the PBMs to put them kind of first line before anything else. So thinking about that dynamic affecting our ability to prescribe uh, what we want to and what we need to in psoriasis is, is going to be very interesting. I mean, the cost savings are, are pretty drastic, right? It really depends on the country. Uh, but in some European countries, it's, uh, it's half the cost of biologics. So, you know, I think it'll be something that we all should keep our eyes on. Uh, to really make sure that the the safety of these seems to be good going forward, and uh, thinking about how we how we incorporate them into our armamentarium. Oh, wonderful, George! Really appreciate that. Uh, great summary of your session, and I appreciate the opportunity uh, for you to come on and and speak to our audience uh, for dialogues in dermatology uh, with this special edition, uh, highlighting. Um, very important components of your session on biologics. So thank you so much for your time and um, look forward to seeing you at the next meeting. Thank you. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology, special edition, the best of the summer AAD 2021. I'm Dr. Brad Glick and I'm your host. Joining me today is Dr. Neil Bhatia. Dr. Bhatia is the current vice president of the American Academy of Dermatology and director Clinical Dermatology Therapeutics Clinical Research in San Diego, California. Neil, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Brad, there's no better honor than spending the day with you. You know that as well as we do. And thank you to the specialty and everybody uh, for allowing me to be your vice president, but also for allowing me to speak at liberty on the use of systemic therapies, which is what we're going to talk to today. Well, I appreciate that. And with that said, uh, we really are interested in your session, Advanced Systemic Therapeutics. What were the main topics included in the talk and how was your session structured? So I have to admit, I mean, this, ther this therapeutic session was built on a summer session on why are we not writing drugs? Why are we afraid of writing systemic drugs? Why are we afraid of doing what's best for patients and even more so discussing the costs of not treating patients because that was a really on a talking point of oh the costs of drugs are high and this is you know too expensive but for you know we can't forget about the patients who are struggling we can't forget about those who are living in prisons of their disease whether it be atopic dermatitis psoriasis hydradenitis or anything else that merits systemic therapy and we've all been frustrated with the lack of efficacy of topicals even more so i think there's a relative lack of understanding in the dermatology world about laboratory monitoring what do we do with label what do we do with getting drugs covered so the session was really about answering all those questions and even more so was un really getting under the hood of how do we treat patients aggressively but yet within our bounds because as dermatologists we're still doctors we're not providers as much as everyone likes to label us even more so is what are we going to do to make our patients better for the long run and the marathon not the sprint so that's really what the the essence of the session was and so what were the topics that were discussed in terms of the disease states? Obviously, we're talking systemic therapies and the fact that perhaps many patients are being undertreated. And I think the pandemic, you know, really unmasked a lot of this as well. And we had a number of patients, at least in my clinic, coming in and they're just, you know, they're horrendously flared, the psoriasis, their atopic dermatitis. So 
what was discussed in the session from the standpoint of disease states, which systemic therapies uh, were highlighted? Well, no question. I mean, the pandemic did a number on a lot of patients, not only in terms of routine, but their confidence in treating systemically because they were worried about immunosuppression. They were worried about shutting down their risk of the virus and even more so what, what they would do for the long run. And I, and I think a lot of us did a good job of talking patients into staying in, in treatment and everything else. I think the session was more about, okay, let's get everyone off the ledge. Let's, let's get it out in the open about this is what you do for the patient who's hesitant or the patient who has not started therapy, who needs it. And even more so, what do we do to not only uh, do a startup visit, but also maintain. And I, I, I'm not a uh, bachelor of telemedicine by any means. I've done a lot to help telemedicine work through the academy. But I have to say, dermatology is a 3D specialty. It's not a 2D specialty by any means from what we see of psoriasis, eczema, hydratinitis, and anything else that needs systemic care. And I think we have to do our best to get our hands on patients, make them feel better about being taken care of, and even more so uh, understanding the needs. If we're giving them shots for pills, understanding what's the long run, what's the marathon with them, and where's the end point for their care. So I, I think a lot of the session topics did that. We were fortunate. We had a lot of really good speakers who talked about acne, who talked about psoriasis, talked about biologics in other realms, and even more so about vaccines. And and again, you know, we think about what is the sprint, what's the marathon, and where are we going with, with treatments? Dermatologists cannot be just a topical specialty because we will be marginalized. We will give it away to the allergists and rheumatologists and we have to, you know, keep our edge as well as even more so keep our sanity in terms of doing what's right for patients. So in the end, I, you know, my, my background is in immunology. I'm, I'm fortunate I did a little bit of medicine before I did derm. I, I think about treating from inside out as well as outside in. I think that's how dermatologists need to think about skin cancer, about psoriasis and everything else. And we ha we're, our toolbox is loaded with great products now. I mean, even compared to 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, we had to be really savvy about being aggressive and caring for our patients, just as you're indicating. But now the tools are there for us. And actually, when I think of, for instance, psoriasis, even with the more highly targeted therapies where you can tell patients you have a 50% chance of getting 100% clear, you might think, okay, it's a really potent therapy probably more side effects. And it turns out some of these newer generation therapies are safer than the older ones. So it's a really good time for our patients with a lot of these inflammatory diseases. And so I'm glad the message that was conveyed there was about being aggressive and standing up for our patients. That segues to a couple of other things before we close. And that is, what had impact in the session? What, what pearls came out of the session that you think uh, will help all of us in, in dermatology. Uh, give me a couple. Yeah, I, and 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 Brad, you're one of my favorites, obviously, because you are on the forefront of obvious what's coming in innovation and everything else. My problem is not that I don't think dermatologists get that. I think most dermatologists are afraid of costs. They're afraid of innovation. They're afraid of fighting the battles for patients. And my you know, if you want to have a battle sign on my head or, a, or like a battle cry, it's like, go get it. Go do what's right for patients and do what you have to do. Call out these peer-to-peers uh, -peers and these you know, PBMs who are in our way to, to get patients covered. 
But I think in the end, our session was more about, okay, let's not lose our edge. Let's not give the specialty away to allergists and rheumatologists and PAs and everybody who is smarter than us all of a sudden. I think, you know, we are the experts, skin, hair, and nails, and everything else aside. Let's think about how do we manage therapies? How do we manage lab results? How do we manage long-term outcomes? Biologic therapies don't need a lot of work. They need maintenance. They need audition of the patient doing their job, and they need maintenance. You know, therapies that are systemic, the small molecules that are coming, we manage those just like we do with isotretinoin. All of that is just being a doctor. And I think a lot of dermatologists have forgotten how to be a doctor. And I'm afraid to say that as a representative of the specialty. But at the same time, that is really what's going on. You see a lot of dermatologists who are afraid to be doctors, who are just forgetting about ramping it up and saying, all right, I'm going to treat you with whatever it takes to get you better. And I, I, I worry about the next three to five years of us not having our edge and losing our edge to, to again, to allergists and rheumatologists. We're going to take away urticaria, psoriasis, you know, atopic dermatitis, contact dermatitis, because they're not afraid of biologic therapy. They're not afraid of systemic treatments, and they are going to do what it takes to treat the patients better. Whereas I think a lot of dermatologists are just not saying, I don't have time. I don't have time to treat the patients. I don't have time to fill out the paperwork. Well, you better you better make the time because we're going to lose our specialty if we don't do that. And that's my biggest concern uh, looking into the future in the crystal ball. So when listening to you, it makes me think of this, and that is the Nike swoosh. We have to quote, just do it. Just do it. Exactly. And with, exactly. And with that, uh, I really have enjoyed this summary of your great session at the summer AAD, and I'm sure that our audience uh, will enjoy uh, what we all learned from this session and really learning more about what we need to do for our patients when it comes to systemic therapy. So thank, well, thank you, you so very much. And um, no, I look forward you. to our next Dialogues in Dermatology. Absolutely. No, thanks. It's an honor to be here and all the best to everybody. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology, special edition, the best of the summer AAD 2021. I'm Dr. Brad Glick and I'm your host. Joining me today is Dr. Peter Leo. Dr. Leo is Assistant Clinical Professor of Dermatology and Pediatric at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Dr. Leo received his medical degree from Harvard Medical School and his dermatology training at Harvard. Dr. Leo is the founding director of the Chicago Integrative Eczema Center and currently serves as a board member and scientific advisory committee member for the National Eczema Association. Welcome, Peter, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's get started. Tell us about your session on integrative dermatology. What's the evidence? What were the main topics included in the talk, and, and how was your session structured? Tell us about it. You know, I think it's so exciting because there really has been in recent years an increasing push to learn more about integrative and alternative approaches to treating common skin conditions and sometimes not so common skin conditions. And of course, I often start the session out by saying it's not just for us. You know, I think dermatologists and other clinicians are interested in this, but really, I think this is largely a patient-driven phenomenon. Many of my patients say, you know, is there anything we could do that's a little more natural? Is there any other approaches to this? And part of what we're trying to do with this session is, one, get the word out that there is some evidence to some of these things 
it's not all a bunch of poppycock. You know, sometimes people sort of dismiss it before we even get started, but to really show that there is some evidence behind some of the things. Two, to arm us so that we can say with at least, you know, with certain conditions and certain treatments, we can say with some authority, hey, actually I've looked into this and there really wasn't very good evidence for this one. So I'm gonna actually try to talk you out of this one, push you away from that. But if you wanna do something more of an adjunct or adjuvant to your current treatment, maybe we could consider something like this. And the third one, I think really the, the, the under, underlying hidden agenda is so that we can just connect better with our patients by even just engaging it or entertaining it as opposed to rolling your eyes and walking out of the room or being totally dismissive, just saying, hey, you know what? I did learn a little bit about it. They actually had a neat session at our academy meeting. And while we know there's a lot of unanswered questions, it's still something we can engage in. And I often say that more often than not, after we do that, the patient feels happy, they feel connected, they feel listened to, and we often still do very conventional treatment. So even though I might be talking about a lot of things that are outside of the conventional canon, still we're using the bread and butter that we learn about every day. You know, to your point, even in my practice, patients ask all the time, can't we take a different approach? Can't we take a more natural approach? You know, and a lot of discussion has happened really this past couple of years, for instance, on cannabinoids, which I know is, is your wheelhouse. So with this in mind, the structure of your session, tell us what came out of the session, uh, maybe some pearls, what subject matter? Were there some disease states that you discussed specifically as it related to integrative medicine and kind of tie that in to what happens in your practice as well as what came out of the session? Yes, I was very lucky. I had two wonderful speakers with me this year, Dr. Raja Sivamani uh, and also Dr. Vivian Shi. And between the three of us, we talked about a number of things. We talked about the general approach. We talked about psoriasis acne and rosacea and hair loss and atopic dermatitis. So we covered a big swath of dermatology in that period. And what I what I think is kind of neat, some of the pearls that came out of it, number one, I think is just the way that we talk about health and disease. There is something to learn from our alternative colleagues, you know, practitioners that do different traditions. And one of my favorite points is that in medical school and in conventional medicine, we often use these sort of bellicose or belligerent terms. We're going to cut that out. We're going to crush that infection. We're going to stomp out this, you know, cancer, whatever it is. And when you listen to other traditions, they don't really talk that way. They have a very different lexicon. So they're using terms like we're going to, we're going to strengthen. We're going to tonify. We're going to rebalance. Like this is so, it, I find it very, very soothing to hear. And I love this just philosophically speaking. So part of, again, that hidden agenda is can we use some of these terms? We even with conventional treatment. So now when I talk about using moisturizers for my patients with atopic dermatitis, I say, this is going to strengthen your skin barrier. It's going to help protect you, right? It's wonderful. That's the truth. We're not lying. We're not even stretching the truth, but it's just the way that we're kind of couching it in these terms that are more positive, uplifting, and a little bit, I think, more in general, more encouraging rather than destructive. We got to smash that inflammation. We got to knock your immune system out. You know, it's like we can, and maybe we can do both, right? Um, and then one of the neat things was for each different disease state, we actually went through the evidence pretty extensively and found different pearls for each disease. So for atopic dermatitis, Dr. Vivian Shi did a beautiful job talking about some of the things that can help with skin barrier, things like sunflower oil, some of the things that can maybe help with colonization of Staph aureus, like coconut oil, which turns out to actually have reasonably robust data that it actually does help. And it really seems to work through these monolaurins or lauric acid that seems to be anti-staph. 
And then Dr. Sivamani did acne, rosacea, and psoriasis, did a beautiful job talking about some of the things for acne, things like pantothenic acid, vitamin B5 supplement that really does seem to help comedonal lesions, and niacinamide, which of course we know in another context, pretty reasonable evidence that it helps as a skin cancer prevention, at least in some contexts it seems to, but also has an anti-inflammatory effect in acne and rosacea. And then in psoriasis, we talked about fish oil supplementation, pretty convincing evidence, several different studies, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, showed an effect, and even topical indigo naturalis, a, a very interesting herb that when applied topically shows both clinical, you know, really impressive clinical, substantial clinical effect, but also there's micro, they can show uh, microscopy and, and histological changes, and even they can show biomarker changes. So really we're seeing things that almost look like drug studies, on these sort of non-drug agents. And I think that's particularly impressive because we know the funding to do these kind of trials is far less than what we have in the large companies behind it who's actually trying to bring something to market. And I think it'd be great if we can get that evidence and expand that evidence uh, in, into our hands. I really like what you talked about the conversation though, the changing of the conversation. It's more of a positive forward flow. And to your point as well, if you have that mindset, even as the clinician, that you want to try those traditional therapies first, you've kind of created a little bit of a positive spin. And then perhaps if you have to segue to that magical moment where maybe the traditional therapies don't work, when you run out of steam, it's great to be able to have some of these alternative therapies uh, in your toolbox. Absolutely. I still use an awful lot of conventional immunosuppressive agents and an awful lot of biologic agents in my practice. So it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily compete with that. If anything, I view it as something that we can bolster, we can support. And that's really why we love this term integrative as opposed to alternative. This is not an alternative for conventional treatment. This is something more in the spirit of complementary or adjuvant kind of therapies. And I personally find that really exciting. I do as well. And in fact, you, know, you talked about coconut oil. I've been using coconut oil for my atopic patients for years and years and years. And I find it a great barrier restorer and, and also, you know, a reasonably mid-potency anti-inflammatory too. And the patients really like it. And the fact that it's natural, quotes around the natural part, uh, is really appreciated by the patients. What questions came out of the sessions? Were there any kind of challenging questions or, um, you know, uh, maybe some, some maybe even pushback as to where integrative medicine should play a role? Definitely. There always is some interesting pushback. You know, sometimes people say, well, you know, if, if you don't have enough evidence for something, how can you talk about it in good conscience? And I think we try to head that off at the past because we talk about the three key filters that we're going to put on everything that we cover in the session and frankly, everything that I do in my own practice. Filter number one is there actually has to be some clinical evidence because otherwise then it's a universe of things. Someone could say, what if I spray the glass cleaner on my elbow? And what if I turn around three times and fall? I mean, you could just anything. I don't know. You know, so you have to have some clinical evidence. Number two is it has to be safe. We have to have some general assurances of safety. And sometimes that is easier said than done because it's true. Sometimes herbs are they're contaminated with heavy metals or things have been tainted in a certain way. So that can be a little trickier. And we realize how important the FDA is as much as we all love to give grief to the FDA for being slow pokes and torturing us. On the other hand, they're there to protect us and the patients. And I'm, I'm grateful for them. And you really feel it when you leave, it's like, whoa, we don't know if this company is really doing what they say, because while this ingredient might be safe, how do I know this preparation is safe? Might not even have what they say. And then the third piece is it has to be practical. 
And that's really important because everyone's practice is a little bit different, but I don't think any of us practicing conventional Western dermatology could integrate a full herbal practice in without lots of training and lots of supply chain and connections. So we're not going to go there because what can I say? We, we can't really do that. So we're really trying to find these sort of bite size, if you will, things that we can bring in. And I think by the end, one of my favorites is a number of people come up from the audience and they, they will say things like, you know, I was one of the skeptics you talked about when you started, but I kind of see what you're saying. I really like the way you presented it. And you, you didn't overpromise. You know, we sort of, we sort of underpromise, overdeliver. And I think at the end, people say, you know what? This is something that good clinicians do to some degree anyways, right? How many of, of our favorite pearls we learned from our teachers, they didn't have much evidence and maybe some of them still don't, some do. Later on, you said, boy, that person was really onto something and now we found something new. But many great clinicians have to think outside of the box all the time and use some of their instinct and use some of their experience. And in a way, that's really all that we're doing here. You've spoken on this a lot previously over this last few years and really one of our pioneers in the modern day in this area of integrative medicine and integrative dermatology. Is there a particular resource that you can share with our listeners that would be one that those that are interested in integrating this, and I think it's part of the future of how we practice, uh, a particular resource uh, that they can look to to get started, you know, kind of like integrative medicine, integrative dermatology made ridiculously simple for the dermatologist. You're right. We definitely need that. I'll say there's a couple of resources that I direct people to. First of all, I encourage everybody who's a member of the American Academy of Dermatology to join us because we actually have an expert resource group devoted to integrative derm. And I'm one of the co-chairs along with Dr. Rena Rupani from New York. And it's so much fun. And we're really big. Like we're over 50 people. It's everyone's welcome. There's no, we don't ask anything of you. It's almost like a mini meeting that we do and we all keep in touch. And then we have an email server for people who want to follow up. And we even have a Facebook page um, for those who are interested in, in Facebook, because we, we really do. We'll share ideas and talk about new articles. It's, it's really kind of fun. There also are a couple of textbooks. Dr. Andrew Weil has a series uh, and one of the books is on dermatology. Disclosure, I am an author of, well, I think I did three chapters in there, but I get no residuals from that textbook. You know, as an author, you don't get paid, you just do it. But Rena Rupani, who I just mentioned, she is an editor, so I think she does get some kind of a, of a royalties set up with that book. It's a wonderful book. And then I published a book that um, is a handbook of clinical kind of clinical integrative derm, which is very, very short uh, and very pointed for clinicians, kind of to keep in your white coat pocket. But I do get residuals on that, royalties on that. For those who want to learn about this, we're very, very happy all the hard work that you've done in this area, Dr. Leo. Thank you so much. This has been really fun, very engaging, and a fantastic summary of just what happened in your session at our Summer Academy. So till the next podcast, thank you so much, Dr. Leo, and thank you to all the listeners for Dialogues in Dermatology. Thank you for having me. What would saving 25% mean to your practice? Would it mean being able to open a new location, hire a new team member, or upgrade your equipment? Title Commerce is the AAD's preferred provider for merchant services and is committed to saving AAD members 25% or more on their payment processing. Join your fellow members who have already switched and saved. Call 855-51-TITLE or visit titlecommerce.com AAD to learn more. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. 
you can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.